There aren't many golf courses in the world that are better than Bandon Dunes, but Bandon's lasting legacy isn't as a golf course. It's as an idea that North America can have true links golf, and even better, that it can have remote golf courses that can turn into bucket list destinations. Plenty of courses have followed in Bandon's footsteps, like Cabot Links in Nova Scotia or Sand Valley in Wisconsin. It's a movement, but it sure didn't start that way. I'm Dylan DeChair, and on today's Drop Zone, here's how one course in nowhere Oregon turned into an entire movement all by accident. The story of Bandon Dunes begins with David McClay Kidd, a Scottish 26-year-old who had dreamt of becoming a golf course architect, but had no concrete path to making that happen. So uh, back in 1994, uh, I was 26 years old and working for the Glen Eagles Hotel in Scotland. Uh, my father was uh, the golf course's manager and I was working for uh, the development division of that, that hotel effectively. Uh, and I was heading up all the golf part and I was a wannabe golf course architect. I'd, I'd done a couple of little things, but nothing really of any note. Uh, and Mike Kaiser had a friend called Rick Summers, who's the current uh, owner of PGA Golf Magazine. Uh, and Mike said to Rick Summers, I've got this piece of land on the Oregon coast. I want to build an authentic Scottish-Irish links experience. Uh, who do you think I should hire? Uh, I'm thinking of hiring, you know, Tom Fazio or Jack Nicholas or Pete Dye or, uh, and Rick said, well, you should hire a Scottish golf course architect if you want something authentic. And uh, Mike chuckled and said, I would, but they all died a hundred years ago. At this point, it wasn't just McClay Kidd who was an unknown in the golf world. Mike Kaiser was too. He'd made his money by bringing a fresh mindset to the greeting card business decades before and he'd proven to be a smart businessman. But that doesn't guarantee any success as a wannabe course developer. As an outsider, his first instinct might have been to hire a big-name architect, someone from the establishment, to give his project credibility. But maybe he had it in the back of his mind that a fellow outsider would be a more proper fit. So he invites David McClay Kidd to the remote site on the Oregon coast to check things out. And so I arrived on the site uh, with my dad sort of holding my hand and we walked the 1600 acres I remember uh, that Mike had. Mike Kaiser wasn't there, I'd never met him yet. His uh, caretaker Shorty Dow, who was even then in his 70s, was our chaperone for the week. So David and his father walked the property with his caretaker, Shorty Dow, and they're thinking to themselves, what if Kaiser doesn't know any better? What if he might hire a no-name? But Shorty keeps asking for McClay Kid's business card, and eventually he gives him one. And when Shorty pulls out a stack of cards that he's recently collected, McClay Kid realizes that every major golf course architect has walked this same site. And I realized that Mike Kaiser was pretty astute, and he was he was looking at every possible option as an architect to to do this. This sets something off in McClay Kid. If he's going to be an underdog, well, he may as well act like one. At that point, I think I got a little a fire in my belly, probably, because I realized that this guy was never going to hire me. I didn't have anything to show. I, I, there was no way. I was 26. 
So he's going to hire some big name. But hell, I'm not going to leave here with my chin on my chest. I'm going to leave with my head held high. So I went to the local drugstore. I bought a dozen sheets of poster board and a few marker pens. And I wrote what would now be considered a PowerPoint presentation. I did it on poster boards with uh, marker pens. Uh, and Mike Kaiser flew in a few days later in his private jet with some of the executives from Kemper Sports and some of his buddies, and I laid out uh, a half a dozen or a dozen, I can't even remember now, poster boards that told Mike Kaiser, this rich guy from Chicago with a great piece of land, what it would take to build a true, authentic Lynx course in America. And I did so with kind of uh, a little chip on my shoulder because I figured with my relatively limited knowledge of Lynx golf in America that there was nothing authentic. I was told Pebble Beach was a Lynx course. Doesn't look like it to me. Uh, I was told, you know, the latest golf course by whichever PGA pro you want to pick uh, that was in the mountains of Southern California was a Lynx course. It was the farthest thing from the truth. So when I painted out a scenario to Mike Kaiser, I said, hey, if you really want to build a true Lynx course in America, here's what it takes. And I had a half a dozen points uh, that were absolutely critical, such as you can't have golf carts. There's no golf carts in the British Isles. You walk. Uh, there's no fancy clubhouse out on the ocean. That's where you put the best green. The clubhouse is back in a corner. The best land is golf. Uh, the fairways aren't flat. They're pitching and tumbling. There aren't any lakes. There's no babbling streams. There's no cart paths. Uh, the grasses we use are these old style firm grasses. Back then, I may even have told them there's no irrigation. Can't quite remember what if I said that or not. Yeah. Uh, the, the bunkers aren't these omebus uh, cloverleaf shapes. They're, they're these pot bunkers that uh, are there to, to punish the bold, not to uh, beat up on the weak. Uh, and as I went through this explanation of Lynx Golf, uh, Mike had a wry smile on his face and in his uh, cohorts laughed openly out loud at the ridiculousness of such a thought in the sophisticated golf market of the United States. Uh, and I assumed that when my father and I left the very next day, we would never hear from Mike Kaiser again. Uh, our crazy Scottish ideas of golf in America were just that. What American golfer would traipse all the way to the Southern Oregon shores to play golf in the wind and rain and walk? and then find themselves in an eight-foot-deep pot bunker surrounded by fescue grasses and pitching fairways where not a single flat lie is available. Such a scenario could never, ever work. So at this point, it seems like there's not much hope for McClay Kid's vision for Bandon. His vision is just too different. His resume is too thin. His presentation lacked professionalism. But then something happens. Kaiser calls him back. Did you really believe all that stuff you said, he asks. Clearly, McClay Kid's presentation had struck a chord. 
Kaiser really does want a true Lynx course. Everything I said that, that others might have laughed at when they compared it to American golf, he compared it to his experiences in the UK and Ireland, and it completely matched his experiences. The very things I was saying were the, the core basic building blocks of the golf experience he so enjoyed in the United Kingdom. He just maybe hadn't deconstructed it the way I was doing. It's important to remember that at this point, there wasn't much golf on this continent that actually matched the experience of Lynx golf in the UK. If Kaiser has anything in mind, it's projects that are 100 years old, Pine Valley or National Golf Links. He found something appealing in the pre-golf cart era of the game, and he and McClay Kidd had that in common. He's certainly not looking at post-World War II golf in America, where the golf cart took over, residential development started to move in, uh, the development of uh, very, very highly genetically modified grasses uh, started to become the order of the day. All these things, irrigation, there's a huge one. Uh, the the post-World War II uh, creation of, of complex irrigation systems, all of those things intended to make the, goal, the game better, I think Mike Kaiser looked at, and although he may not have put his finger on it, he knew that that wasn't what he enjoyed. I looked at it as a Scot and I could immediately see them. They were, they were as clear as the nose in my face that those basic building blocks that were added post-World War II had not in fact helped the game. They'd taken it off in a completely different direction that was alien to golf in the British Isles. So now things are going pretty well for McClay Kid, and his vision for Bandon Dunes seems right on track. He gets the invite back to come and develop a few more ideas, and then he gets invited back again, and again. And this process goes on for three more years. At no point in that three years did Mike Kaiser ever once say to me, you're the guy. It's late 1997 now, and finally McClay Kid gets the green light to go ahead and actually start building the golf course. Sort of. He's still on probation. And Mike openly told me many times, if you build anything I really don't like, my fallback is I'll just fire you and hire somebody that knows what the hell they're doing. And he would openly tell me that. So not only did I never get the job, even when I got to start the job, there was this veiled threat that if I ever screwed up at any point, I, he would just kick me off the horse and put someone else on the horse. But McClay Kid plows on nonetheless. In the winter of 97, they build the entire back nine, starting on number 12, going to 15, 16, 17 along the water, and then working their way back towards the clubhouse by the spring of 98. There's still no assurance that any of this is going to work, especially for a broader audience, but the team gets its first positive review, courtesy of Golf Magazine, actually. A travel writer named Brian Callen was reviewing courses from Washington down towards San Francisco, and plans to stop by Bannon for a short meeting on the way. So Brian stops and Josh and I host Brian to play the back nine. And I think two days later, uh, Brian decides that he can't stay any longer after playing that back nine round and round and round and round and round with no pins in, no nothing. And, and he says, you know, wow, this is like nothing I've ever seen before. I, I, it blew his mind. 
Uh, and that was the first time that Josh and I realized that if this fairly sophisticated golf writer could be traveling the world playing golf and stop here expecting nothing and expecting to stop for an hour and staying for two days, if it grabbed his attention this hard, what are, should we pinch ourselves? Is this really happening? You might be more familiar with how the story goes from there. They built it and people came. Kaiser hires Tom Doak to design a second course, Pacific Dunes, which opens in 2001. The two courses immediately skyrocket to the top of lists like ours at Golf Magazine. Best courses you can play. And more courses follow. Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw design Band and Trails, which opens in 2005. Doak and Jim Urbina design Old MacDonald, which opens in 2010. And then the fun really begins. The fifth course, Band and Preserve, is an inventive 13-hole par-3 course that opens in 2012. The Punch Bowl, a massive, rollicking 18-hole putting course, opens in 2014. And this past summer, in June 2020, the Sheep Ranch opens, 18 holes along the cliffs, that includes a mile of dramatic coastline. You get the idea. Bandon Dunes has become arguably the greatest place on earth to go play golf. You know, if you take uh, different ecosystems and you put them all together, the environmentalists call it a, a biome, B-I-O-M-E. You know, what Bandon has become, or the dream golf thing, it's like a golfing biome all by itself. You know, it's bigger than one course. It's bigger than just the golf. Uh, it's a whole biome. It's almost a way of life. Uh, but the thing I'm proudest of is Bandon laid down a blueprint, uh, uh, a proof of concept uh, that worked so well that it allowed everything else to follow. And follow they did. You know, I got a set of photos in 2004, and they were all taken from the air. And, you know, what you couldn't tell was whether there was any real movement in the land, but what you could tell is there was a mile of ocean frontage, a rectangular property on the ocean on a sandy beach with the town of Inverness on the inside. That's Ben Cowendour, who at this point in the story is 25 years old and runs a golf tourism company out of Toronto. At dinner one night, he hears about this strip of coastline in rural Nova Scotia, the site of a former coal mine that people have talked about turning into a golf course for decades. Architects and developers have visited the site, but nothing has ever made it past an idea. You know, most of the most of the conversations would begin with people would say, so you're a golf pro? And I was like, nope. And they would say, so you, but you work at a golf course? And I said, nope. And but you, so you design golf courses? No. Have you ever built a golf course, a hotel, a restaurant? Eventually I would just say, I've never done any of those things, just so you don't have to go through the list. You know, it seemed progressively worse. And my first hit on the idea, the guy literally said, this is the worst expletive idea I've ever heard. And I hear bad ideas for a living. And so you got used to hearing that a lot and certainly in those early years. But, uh, but that was sort of how the original idea came about. There's an obvious parallel to be drawn here. Like David McClay Kidd, Ben Cowendur is an unproven 20-something with a vision and a lot of self-belief. Like McClay Kidd, Cowendur gets in touch with Mike Kaiser. Their first conversation happens in early 2005, right before Bandon Trails is opening. And Cowendur doesn't think the conversation goes that well. A polite brush off, as he called it. But then Kaiser says something interesting right before they hang up. 
as we're hanging up, he said, wait, Pan. And I said, yeah. And he said, you've got to get more land. And I was like, well, Mike, the first site is like 13 parcels of land, and I don't have enough money to build the golf course. Like, I don't think what I need to do is go buy more land. And he's like, no, you got to do it because, you know, you'll be successful and you'll never be able to afford more land. And so, you know, I think, again, if you want to talk about confidence, when you don't have the money to build the first course, going and trying to option the land for the second. So where does this confidence come from? Cowan Dewar insists that it's really just confidence in the site itself. There's no population center near Inverness, but as he zooms out a little wider, he can see that there's a radius of cities, from Toronto to Detroit, on down to New York, even Washington, D.C., that are just a two-hour flight away. Nothing else really exists like this in northeastern North America, and it's certainly an easier trip than Scotland or Ireland. But that doesn't mean things are easy. Every time Cowan Dewar flies from his home in Toronto to Halifax, he finds himself questioning his investment. It seemed like every time I landed in Halifax, it was raining, and I'd run across this parking lot to a rental car. I'd be soaked, and I'd start driving, and I was investing basically all the money I was making in my business into this idea. And I'd have these moments of fear and self-loathing on the drive up, thinking, like, this is a terrible idea. And then Suddenly, you know, the sun would break and I'd come onto Cape Breton and it literally was just one of the, you know, for somebody who'd been so lucky to see lots of the most beautiful spots, this was without question one of the most beautiful spots in the entire world. And, you know, then I would get to the site and the ether for me was really the smell of salt air. And I just thought, if we can do this, if we can pull it off, everybody who comes here, you know, will love standing on this ground. And so I think it was really more the enduring you know, belief in the site than it was that I could do it. I had lot, lots of days that I thought, or, you know, I had no business doing it, uh, for sure. Kaiser comes aboard, and he shares the vision. It's Lynx Golf. It's walking only. Less is more. And only one thing stands in their way, the financial crisis. In 2009, you can count the number of golf courses still under construction in the world on one hand. But the team at Cabot Links has two advantages. The first is a small, gritty team. And the second is an understanding of social media. Two, Rod Whitman literally was on a bulldozer with two people helping him that summer, and he rough-shaped all 18 holes. And I you know, only so much I could do to get the word out. We didn't have a lot of money. So I started taking photos of the golf under construction and putting them on Facebook. The media landscape is shifting in real time, and by bringing complete strangers along for the ride, Cowandur is creating fans of a course that doesn't even exist yet. Before we opened, we would have had more likes on Facebook than most of the golf resorts in the world. But we also had this community of people who were watching this very rough-shaped golf hole, and then it would get seeded, and you'd see a hundred and then they see the grass grow. And so like, I remember the very early years of Cabin, like people would come up and be like, I've been following on Facebook for five years, I just wanted to meet you. When the course finally opened in 2012, the internet is ready to celebrate it too. The course invites any and all golf media members to come see it in person, which proves to be a wise move, especially because there aren't any other courses opening at the time either. The week we opened, the New York Times did a huge Sunday cover of their sports, and then it was a two-page inside. It was a massively long article by Bill Pennington. And 
you know, in a way, I think if there had been 100 golf courses opening that year, the Times wouldn't have done it. I mean, it was a great story. and talked about the coal mining town being transformed. But I think we really benefited from that, too. In developing a piece of land in the middle of Inverness, Cowandur also has to be particularly attuned to the feelings of the local population. The townspeople generally welcome the course, but any time an outsider comes into a small town making big changes, it's wise to be careful. The leaders of the town had really felt like, given that the coal mining, as you said, had left, you know, um, five decades before I arrived, so too had the economic engine. I mean, Inverness um, at the turn of the, uh, at, you know, in sort of the early 1900s was a vibrant community with, um, you know, I think close to 8,000 residents. And when, you know, I came in 2004, there are probably 1,200 residents. So it's sort of a, you know, not a, not an unusual tale of rural decline, um, which we've seen lots of places in the world, but really it was one that, you know, could golf be its transformative engine? And, you know, as I think about last year, we employed over 800 people, you know, certainly, you know, it had that effect and that would have exceeded all of our, I mean, the town fathers, mine, and Mike's wildest dreams when we walked around those in the early years that we could do that. As with Bandon, Cabot Links begins to succeed because of an attention to detail, getting the small stuff right, and building sustainable relationships. That means employing members of the community and keeping those employees happy. It means using restraint. And it means giving golf customers an unforgettable experience. Once that foundation's in place, the rest logically follows. First comes the spectacular sequel, Cabot Cliffs, which Corin Crenshaw designed just up the road from the original course. Inverness is back on the map, and Cabot Links is on the shortlist of best North American golf destinations. And Cowandur wants to keep that feeling of creating going. You know, uh, Mike told me when we met that he was going to keep building golf courses till he ran out of money or he died, and he felt like he had time on both fronts. So. And, you know, I sort of tried to follow that lead, although I could uh, I could uh, run out of money a lot sooner. So, uh, you know, we'll see. But we'll keep uh, keep trying. It's just there's nothing that's more fun in the world uh, than doing it and being a part of it and watching them come to life. And and I think, you know, the lasting legacy of Inverness and watching, you know, how it's transformed people's lives and the job we've been able to do isn't, you know, isn't why we did it originally. But a big part of why we do it today. So watching that come and uh, and I think, you know, trying to find great destinations that we can build amazing golf and uh, and give people that reason to go to, to far off magical places. It turns out that there are more Kaisers looking to bring people to magical places. So I was, I think, 18 when Bannon Dunes opened. I, I worked out there in the summer of 99. But I, I spent my entire childhood, uh, not full time, but uh, on the Oregon coast. That's Michael Kaiser Jr. He grew up playing what he calls wilderness golf with his dad, where they'd pick a tree in a field and play to it. The rest of golf came logically from there. So I have a lot of fond memories, let's say between 91 and when we opened eight years later, spending weeks at a time exploring the land uh, with mostly my dad. My sisters had a little less interest and Chris, you know, had just been born. Uh, but walking with Shorty Dow, who's the caretaker of the property, and my dad. Um, again, that at that moment, it really was like wilderness golf, right? Where anything is possible. There are holes in every direction. Michael Jr. falls out of love with golf as a kid 
and then back in love with it later on. As his father's developments continue to grow and evolve, he and his brother Chris, seven years younger, get involved again. I got a new car in maybe 2017, and I want to say I put 20 plus thousand miles on it, you know, in the first six months. So I've gotten very used to that four hour drive. And luckily, early on, somebody exposed me to, you know, podcasts and books on tape. That's Chris. He lives in Chicago, but over the last several years, he's spent a large chunk of his time and energy in the tiny town of Rome, Wisconsin, some four hours north. That's where he and Michael Jr. took over development of Sand Valley, the third dream golf site, the Midwest's answer to Bandon and Cabot. Before it was a golf course, Sand Valley was just a large, sandy piece of land. The sand part was crucial. The Wisconsin part, more of a curveball. Um, you know, that, that simple recipe that my dad has talked about, we talked about is sand, architect, ocean. That's the Kaiser recipe for a site. And they had the sand, they had a stable of willing architects. But was the site spectacular enough to offset the lack of ocean? It was time to find out. Mike and his sons decided to purchase some 1,700 acres in 2013 and immediately got to work, bringing in Core and Crenshaw to design the first course, Sand Valley. It would open in May 2017, a year after their design at Cabot Cliffs opened, and it earned rave reviews. Corin Crenshaw designed a par 3 course, too, called the Sandbox, which opened a year later. And just a month after that, Mammoth Dunes, designed by David McClay Kidd, posted its first rounds. The resort came together fast, and the golfers soon followed. I think the big trend is that more and more people are taking these buddy trips, family trips, couple, couples trips, right? And I think maybe participation at the local level is declining, although that seems to have reversed itself during COVID. Where, where golf is just taking off, of, you know, with, with all experiences. But certainly notice that the destination trip uh, has, has been uh, thriving. Um, that's, that's the biggest trend and that benefits us and that allows us to continue doing uh, what we're doing. Golf IQs have gone through the roof because of podcasts and, and the attention that you know, magazines like yours are, are giving to you know, architecture and um, I think our average, our average guest has a far higher golf IQ than they may have 30 uh, years ago or even 10 years ago. Uh, and they expect far more uh, from the developer uh, in the golf experience, in the food and beverage experience, in the hospitality experience. The expectations could be higher and I think are at an all time high. And many of us are, are competing in a friendly cooperative way to to live up to those expectations and, and hopefully if we work really hard exceed them but if the success of bandon dunes and cabot links represented some theory of remote destination golf sand valley was here to hammer the point home michael jr and chris had turned what was their father's instinct into something more of an exact science and a chance to answer the question what do their customers really want Certainly every one of our guests is here to play golf. That, that's the most important experience. And it's where they spend the vast majority of their waking hours, right? Uh, a round of golf takes four hours. Uh, most golfers either play a second round, another four hours, or the par three, excuse me, which takes about two hours, or go to a putting course. So people are here to, to play golf. Uh, within the golf experience, why are they here? They're here to interact with their friends 
and family and get away from their phones and the stresses of, of life uh, and to be in nature, right? So golf is a game that we play while experiencing all of these other things, right? Which, which are, I believe, the, the primary drivers for, for playing golf, right? The, the fun, the playfulness, the competition, the camaraderie, the nature. Um, but they don't spend every waking hour playing golf and it's our job to continue the fun, the relaxation, the camaraderie um, while they're not playing golf. And uh, those are extremely important, you know, minutes and hours that they spend with us. And it's our responsibility to, to keep that, uh, keep those highs going while they're here. For Michael Jr., serving the customer first meant embedding himself in the community by moving to Rome. For Chris, it meant falling in love with that four-hour drive from Chicago. Their devotion to the process has continued as they've opened three courses, brainstormed even more ways to keep golfers happy, and to keep them coming back. Take Sedge Valley, a Tom Doak design which is currently on pause, but was set to be a par 68, a number that you very rarely see on the scorecards of modern courses. I think it, it boils down to people not having to care about their score. And I think that's an affliction a lot of us suffer, especially in the United States, where it's all about what you shoot, you know, 360 degrees around your putt that I'm going to miss the line by a foot half the time anyways. Um, so when you go out on the preserve 13 holes, nobody knows 39 is the par. I, I've never heard anybody brag, hey, I shot 40, I shot 37. It's about you're out there with seven of your buddies or people that you like, maybe three, maybe seven, you can play it in eight if you want. And you're just focusing on pure golf. So the shots that you're hitting and the people that you're with and enjoying your time. And I think sometimes 72 and what am I gonna shoot? And oh my God, you know, that gets in the way of fun. So that's one of the reasons I think part threes are great. Um, it only takes one to two hours. That's another benefit. And it's one of the reasons, you know, we had kind of embarked, we've since hit pause on Sedge Valley, you know, the course with Tom Doak, which was going to be a par 68. That wasn't the only reason to design it as a par 68, but it was certainly a feather in the cap of moving away from 72 and focusing on score. And let's move away from that, whether it's par threes, playing as a scramble, playing match play, you know, golf can do a lot of things. It can be championship play, but it doesn't have to be. And, and we're focused on the retail golfer who, who isn't a pro. So why not help them have a ton of fun? Fun. That's a word that comes up a lot when you talk to anyone in the Kaiser family or their related orbit of dream golf courses. There's more coming. There's Cabot St. Lucia, the Kaiser's expansion to the Caribbean. And they're exploring other sites, too, and expanding their current holdings. But let's circle back to the very beginning and let McClay Kid have the last word. You know, it's, it's important to remind you guys that, you know, when you're talking about dream golf today, 30 years ago almost, Mike Kaiser was trying to see if he could build a single golf course in America that might not lose a fortune every year, that he and his buddies and a few locals could play, drink a Bud Light and eat a cheeseburger. That was it. That was his, that was the full extent of Mike's ambition. He had no idea what was going to happen next. None of us had any clue. I was looking for a break, my first big break. 
And my first big break was going to be for an unknown, untested developer. If I got the deal, if I got the deal. Mike Kaiser was nobody. Nobody knew who Mike Kaiser was. He was a greetings cards guy in his mid-50s who liked playing golf. He'd never developed anything. He did nine holes on the shores of Lake Michigan next to his, his summer house. Nobody knew who he was. And now he's bought a chunk of, of worthless land in coastal Oregon that, that nobody else <laughs> wanted. Uh, and he wants to build a Lynx course with a, the son of a Scottish greenkeeper that absolutely nobody on earth has heard of. Even the Scottish people he went to school with don't remember him. So the, this was not what you guys are thinking right now. This is the story at this point in 1994 through 98 is uh, a few guys trying to build a cool golf course that they already know nobody else will get. Only Mike Kaiser is going to get it. Even Kemper, his management company, were shaking their heads and telling Mike quite openly, this is not going to work. So far, it seems like it's working out okay. That's going to do it for this week's episode of The Drop Zone. Thanks so much to our guests, David and Ben and Chris and Michael, and to everyone who walked us through the foundations of this dream golf empire. Thanks to Lee Finer, who put this episode together. And thanks to you guys, most of all, for listening. If you like this one, think about leaving a rating, a review. That stuff goes a long way. We'll see you next week.